So Romans 3, beginning at verse uh, 21, this is God's holy and infallible word. Uh, But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood, and He did this to demonstrate His justice. So, last week I did um, a bit of background on this series Um, I'm not going to do as much tonight, and just as an aside, speaking of that, um, I think most of you know this, but in case you don't, if you ever um, miss a Sunday service or a Sunday sermon and and want to catch up, on that back counter, you can sign up to get a CD of any worship service or a DVD of any worship service, and then you'd get the whole worship service. You can just get the messages by going to our our website, faithelmhurst.org, and you can listen, just listen to one, or you can subscribe to the podcast that we have, and then um, two sermons, the two sermons from every Sunday will, I think the fancy word is populate, sometime during the day on Monday in your, in your whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. So, like I said, just a little bit of background tonight, not as much as last week. Um, This year and next, this is the 400th anniversary of, of, uh, of what a lot of people call the Great Synod of Dort. Dutch and um, many international delegates met in the, the city of Dortrecht, the Netherlands, uh, for seven months uh, during late 1618 to 1619 and made a variety of decisions. Uh, one of our confessions, the canons of Dort, came out of that synod. That seems to be what we know that synod most by. Uh, the canons are a response uh, to what are called the five articles of the remonstrance. Uh, and that re- the remonstrance were introducing a new and different teaching on the doctrine of salvation. And the followers of these teachings are known as Arminians after their leader, Jacob Arminius. Again, not Armenians. That's a country, that's an ethnic group, Arminians, Jacob Arminius. Um, Over the years, the five points of those canons from Dort have been summarized uh, and remembered with the word tulip. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. And the actual order in the canons is altip, and that's the order in which we're taking them. Uh, People talk about TULIP as the five points of Calvinism. Um, I can see why they say that, but that's not entirely correct. Uh, There are many, obviously, many, many more points to the faith and and subjects and truths of the faith besides these five. These five focus on the Reformed view 
of salvation. So there's a very narrow focus there. And, and to add to that just a bit and to say something I didn't last week, um, Dr. Joel Beakey, it's a name some of you might know, he describes uh, the Reformed faith in general as a theocentric faith. Theocentric. In other words, we're, we're concerned as uh, Reformed folks, and not exclusively us, but in particular, we're concerned to put God at the center in every part of life and in every doctrine. And so following that description of what it is to be Reformed, we can say that these five points especially point us to theocentrism in salvation. Many, our other two main confessions, the Belgian Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, cover many, many more biblical topics like the fall, the sacraments, the end times, and so on. But this is focused on salvation. And it's good for us to be reminded, as I said last week, of what we believe as a people, as a church. And, and also it's good these days uh, to review and to see what really a lot of Christians in the last, I would say, 15, 20 years or so have been finding so attractive about the doctrines of grace, about the Reformed view of salvation. And, and a lot of churches are, have been getting, and Christians have been almost getting back to their Reformation roots through uh, learning a bit more about TULIP. Unconditional election was last week, and that means the plan of salvation is especially about God's decision, and it does not mean we are not genuinely called to believe in Jesus. Election does not mean that. We are called to personally believe in Jesus. Unconditional election does not mean we don't do evangelism because God elects unconditionally. We do. Jesus commands us to go and make disciples. But it does mean that the salvation of sinners is more about God's decision and God's choice than ours. At least that's our focus and emphasis. That's where our assurance and that's where our only comfort can come from. The fact that it is of God. We decide, we choose, but God's decision, God's choice is bigger than ours. And that's our focus. And now, limited atonement. I'll say as we get into this, more people tend to have trouble with this point than the other four. To such an extent that there's a term out there, four-point Calvinists. And it usually refers to people who embrace the other four ideas in the canons, but not this one. So it can be, it's tougher for a lot of people to understand, to receive. And if you want to talk more about it, or if you would like more material about it after this message, um, I'd be happy I'd be happy to help you out or recommend something. Uh, this is on page 99 and following in the back of the Blue Psalter hymnals, by the way. So the limited part, that might get us off track a bit or be confusing, and it can make this doctrine sound harsher than it maybe is. So we're going to start 
Um, we're going to take this all from a few different angles like we did last week with unconditional election, but we're going to ignore that limited for a minute and make sure we understand the main word, atonement. Atonement, if you just look at the word, you see, I mean, you, you, can, you can figure out what it literally means, and that is at one with, at one, it's right there, at one with, and it, it refers especially to the work of Jesus. We're apart from God in our sin, but Jesus' work unites us, getting at that at one with, unites us, right, to the Father when we're naturally apart. Our text says God presented himself as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. And he did this to demonstrate his justice. So the atonement is God's work in Jesus on the cross where he satisfied God's wrath against sin, thankfully, so that we could be saved because we can't atone for ourselves. So atonement is very closely connected to words like salvation and redemption, and it really gets us right uh, to the center of, of the Christian faith and the heart of the Bible. So first that, and now, what about that limited part? Something is limited, that doesn't, doesn't sound very good. We'll, we'll see in a little bit, there's another word that people use instead of limited that might be a little bit better. Um, but first of all, I, I want to talk about what that limited is not. One pastor says, the limited is not putting any limit on the value of Christ's atonement. Christ's work is powerful. Christ's work is sufficient. It's powerful enough, sufficient enough for the sins of the entire world. That's how powerful it is. There's enough power to save everyone and deliver everyone from their sin. So it's not limited in the sense of, of power, that there's a weakness to it. Also, there's not a limit in our preaching of the gospel of Jesus. So limited atonement, does that mean, well, we limit who we share the gospel with? No, we preach Jesus to everyone. And, and Dort, in one of the very first articles of this head of doctrine on, on the atonement, says we don't limit our preaching and sharing of the gospel. That's not what this means. And they use this, this word that's often used in a different context to preaching. We preach this truth indiscriminately. We don't discriminate. So that means everybody needs to hear the gospel, and we preach it uh, to everyone. But there's a sense in, in why limited isn't a, a terrible word, even though if there, is, there might be a better one that we can talk about, but there are limits in a sense, if you think about it. The atonement is for all who believe, right? Right? It's for those who repent. 
Bible says, believe and repent. Jesus' work of salvation is not for those who do not believe on Jesus. Believe and be saved is the call. And so that tells us right there that while the atonement, Jesus' work, as I said, is sufficient for all, it's not ultimately for everyone. It's sufficient for all, but it's efficient for those who believe. It doesn't take effect for people who don't believe. And those who believe in Jesus, and that's why we talk about that so much around here, those who believe in Jesus get the blessings of the cross and the resurrection. Not everybody. And this starts getting us at what Dort is saying with this point. Here, I want to go over the main points related to this specific topic under salvation that the Arminians made when they argued about the atonement and Christ's sacrifice. Have them up there. This, is, this was the attack that the Arminians brought on, on the, the church at that time. Jesus went to the cross and died there without a definite plan to save anyone in particular. Jesus died to save everyone in general. Jesus died to make salvation possible. I'm summarizing these, but if you look, I, I gave you the, the um, page number in the back of the Psalter hymnal. In the first half of every point of Dort, we have what... Dort said, and in the second half, a number of articles of what the followers of Arminius said. So it's summarizing from that more detailed area, which you can gladly take a look at. So there's something wrong with every single one of these statements in Dort's opinion. First of all, and I just want to go through them. First of all, number one, did Jesus go to the cross with or without a plan to save particular people. I believe the Bible is clear that he died with a plan to save particular people. Jesus says in John 10, 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. Who did he sacrifice himself for? The sheep. In Ephesians 5, we have Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ died for the church. That's a particular group. So then Jesus did have a plan to save people in particular. And that's why a lot of people use the term definite atonement, not limited. In other words, Christ had a definite plan when he went to the cross. Secondly, did Jesus die for the salvation of everyone in general, it's connected to this first one, but it's different. And we just read a couple of texts that, that told us who Jesus died for, his sheep, the church, his people. And we could add to this in Matthew 26, 28, Jesus says, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And so talking about his blood, it was shed for not all, but many. But then there are a number of texts that use the word all 
and world in connection to Jesus' sacrifice. And, and I say that, and I want to go through these, because I don't want you to think people who don't agree with limited atonement are just nuts, you know? They're, they, they're looking at the Bible in a certain way. Um, but I, I want to give a response to several of these, these texts that seem to contradict limited atonement and respond. So John 3.16 God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So God so loved the world. What does world mean there? Does, does, does world mean every single individual was given the Son? Was given to Jesus? Well, not necessarily. World in the Bible sometimes means all kinds of people. It sometimes means people everywhere. It can mean people from all nations, people under judgment. It can mean the created order, or it can just mean a great number of people. And so this text, I don't think, contradicts the Matthew 26 text telling us that Christ shed his blood for many, but not necessarily all. And the point in using the word world in John 3.16 is not to refer to every individual person, but the point is that the world is so evil that it's under judgment. It's about how bad the world is in general and how God's great love has come to this situation of, of evil that we live in the midst of. It's not about all the individuals in the world. Another text that comes up is 1 John 2.2. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So on the surface, it sounds like his atoning sacrifice, we're talking about atonement, is for the sins of the whole world. What do you do with that one? Well, if you take the whole world to mean every individual in, in the world, you've got a bigger problem than limited atonement. You've got what's called universalism. And that's the belief uh, that everyone is saved. And the church has called that a heresy from ages back. But, and the Bible does not teach universalism. It refers to the reality of hell about 200 times. And so it, it can't mean every individual because that means every individual universally would be saved. Here, the whole world most likely refers to God's people scattered far and wide throughout the world from every tribe and tongue and nation. Hang with me here for one more text that I want to highlight. Um, this is another one that people believe or say means that Christ died for everyone rather than just his people. And in 2 Peter 3.9, where it says, the Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I read purposely from the NIV translation, which is in our pews that we mostly use. The Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So it seems that his will is for no one to die, which would mean that his intention on the cross would be to die for all. 
But the issue here is with that little word, anyone. Most other translations don't have one following any. And that's because the original language, Greek, has only any. He doesn't want any to perish, right? Yeah, any to perish. And, and then so you have to fill in any what to perish. He doesn't want any beanie babies to perish, any camels to perish. Well, we need the context. Second Peter is talking <clears throat> about and to the elect. And the immediate context is he is patient with you, referring to God's people. What would you naturally fill in? You. That's the group of any. The Lord is patient with you, not wanting any of you to perish, but all of you to come to repentance. So again, this is talking about God's people. And think about this. If you say Jesus died with the purpose of saving everyone, you come up with a major problem. There are people in hell for whom Christ died. Do we really want to say that? It would mean Jesus didn't do what he intended to do. It means God couldn't accomplish what he wanted to accomplish. If Jesus died for everyone, if he died for everyone, and there are people in hell and headed to hell, as the Bible says, because they don't believe in Jesus, well, then you've got a hell full of people that Jesus died for. And that's a problem. It means that Jesus' sacrifice failed, or at least it was very sadly incomplete. And it would mean God's not all-powerful because he just couldn't get the job done. And that leads to uh, the final point. Did Jesus die on the cross to make salvation possible for people? And the answer is no, though maybe sometimes you've heard that language or You've used that language. Jesus died to make salvation possible. Instead of that, I, I believe the Bible makes quite clear that Jesus died not to make salvation possible, but to actually accomplish salvation, to complete it. Jesus says it is finished on the cross. If Jesus died to make salvation just possible, we're stuck with a funny picture of God. Jesus dies on the cross for our salvation, and then what God does is wait. The picture of God is God crossing his fingers, just hoping that people will respond to Christ's sacrifice and the salvation that he made possible. You have a picture of God who did part of the work, but then is waiting for people to meet him the rest of the way and actually be saved. And ultimately, that would be an ineffective and incomplete atonement. All the language the Bible uses about the cross tells us that Jesus did more than make salvation possible for people who may or may not respond. He secured salvation. He accomplished it. Titus 2.14, He gave Himself for us to redeem us. Not he gave himself to make our redemption possible. Ephesians 5, 25 and 26, Christ gave himself up for the church to make her holy. In other words, to accomplish something. 
We sing, and and we're going to sing it, there's power in the blood. Limited atonement, better, maybe definite atonement, tells us that Jesus had a definite plan that he accomplished and he completed that plan to save his people. Well, does that mean then that salvation and and heaven is just going to be limited to just a, a few people? Well, Revelation 7 and, and the canons of Dort reflecting that indicate that there's going to be a huge multitude of redeemed people. So it's certainly not limited in the sense of some very small, tiny, particular group. It is limited in the sense that not everyone is going to be saved. But then all Bible-believing Christians believe that, right? We believe not everyone's going to be saved. That's why we preach the gospel and so forth. How do you preach and do evangelism to everybody if Christ didn't die to save everyone? That's a question people have. Well, the gospel is the message of Jesus and his work. It's the message, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. We don't know the particulars of who God has out there. Uh, What we do know is not everyone has made a decision for Christ yet because otherwise Jesus would have returned. We don't know who will respond and believe, of course. That's part of God's secret will. We just have to be faithful to get the gospel out as we're commanded. And so there's no trouble in preaching to everyone at all. In fact, this view of atonement, in my opinion, is a great, and that of many others, is a great inspiration to do evangelism. Because if you believe that Jesus died to only make salvation possible, and that in a sense God is crossing his fingers just waiting for a response to the sacrifice of Christ, well, then you know what? We have no idea if anyone will ever respond. But if you believe that Jesus had a definite purpose in saving his people on the cross, you know there will be a response. And we can be bold evangelists. And that's why, again, as I listed last week, so many of the greatest evangelists and missionaries of all time were reformed in their view of salvation. Like I said last week about unconditional election, um, our faith, our salvation doesn't depend on believing or getting all the details right of a particular doctrine or this particular doctrine. But in fact, that's, that's the point of it. Like the rest of the canons, this teaching uh, sees not us and our decision and our, our beliefs and the details of those at the center of salvation, but it sees God at the center of salvation where we believe he properly belongs and where we believe the Bible puts the Lord in its history of redemption. So praise God, thank him for your salvation, totally accomplished in him. How else would it ever have been accomplished if it were up to us in any way, even small? How amazing that he uses us to spread this good news of his salvation and Christ's sacrifice and to share the promise 
Whoever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. We share the good news. We pray for results. And pray that God brings us more and more of his children, even into our faith church community. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the atonement. Thank you for Jesus. Lord, help us to take seriously your call to believe and be saved. Help us to realize that it's not enough just to be around people who believe in Jesus. It's not just enough to have family members who believe in Jesus. Lord, we're called to make that decision. We're called to respond to your invitation. Lord, I think of people out here of many different ages, many different situations in life, from smaller children to older adults. Help each one of us, Lord God, to put our trust in you. Use us, even use our church, to boldly proclaim the good news. Believe and be saved. Bless this church family as we do that together, as we together praise you for your great salvation, and give us a real sense of of purpose and ignite in us a passion to get the word out and show us how to do that in better and better ways all the time. We pray this in your name, Lord. Amen.